This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me today, as he always does, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. And, uh, I'm back <laughs> again, <laughs> hopefully a little bit more permanently now. Uh, but uh, boy, this is, this has been it's been a roller coaster ride, man. I go from one thing to the next to the next to the next, and I'm kind of like that uh, that old car you drive that you take into the mechanic and because it's overheating, and he starts working on the radiator, and he comes and tells you your water pump's got a problem, and so you're like, okay, we'll change the water pump too. Then he comes over and goes, alternator's not really doing much for you. <laughs> and you do that, and he goes, got some leaks in your head gasket. So that's kind of what's happening to me is that as one thing after another gets addressed, something else reveals itself. And um, that's just, you know, it's been, an, it's, it's been a slog. I have been – I'm quite tired of it. <laughs> yeah, I can. I bet. Yeah, but I feel hey, you did get some good news though. For those that have been praying for you, they did rule some things out. That yep. is really good news. Yeah, they did. They did some analysis on the fluid that was removed from me, and they said there's no cancer. That's a good thing, and that there's no sign of infection, which is also a good thing. Um, I was a little disappointed to find out that I thought they'd removed all that stuff because there was so much of it, and apparently they only took out very little of what I'm actually is sloshing around inside my chest. So, um, you know, I'll have an opportunity to get with them later and say, can we take the rest of it out? Or would my <laughs> organs just all fall to the bottom of, the, of my chest cavity? I guess that's a possibility. If you take too much of it out, huh. everything will just go plop. You know, I don't know. <laughs> so this fluid's been holding things up for so long. But anyway. But the good news is so far, yeah. they say everything that they're finding you can recover from. Yeah, that's, is- that is correct. The good news so far is there's nothing where the doctor says you should get your affairs in order. Um, so that not, I've not heard any of that. So, so far we remain optimistic. We continue to go to doctor's visit after doctor's visit after test after test and uh, hopefully get these things sorted out. But I am uh, feeling well enough this week to actually work, which is nice. That's good. Uh, my job isn't particularly physically taxing, so – um, I can actually keep up with it a little bit. So that's nice. I've been, you know, <sighs> let me just say this. Sleeping in the chair all day when you're not feeling well uh, feels good for a little while. And then it starts to feel like you haven't taken a shower in too long or something. It's like it just starts to – everything's just kind of like a little bit of an irritant. And mm-hmm. you, you do. You want to get out of the chair and start doing stuff again. So I guess that's good. It's good mm-hmm. to It's good to not be like – I love this chair. I'll stay in this chair forever. (laughs) (laughs) I can remember during my coat, one of my several COVID quarantines from getting false positives on the the test. Like after a while, I was like, I got to get out of this room. I've got to get out of here. (laughs) It's just, you do feel an irritant toward everything. And this has been two months for you. So that's quite a long quarantine. Yeah, it has been. And, uh, uh, you know, and just the not moving around, things have gotten 
weaker and stuff. So at any rate, I got a lot of work to do, and uh, continued prayers are appreciated. But so far, the Lord has been gracious, and um, all of the news has been good. Uh, there's nothing that says it's all fixed yet, but there's also nothing that says it's not fixable. So there's that's that's really where we are. And uh, learning new things every day. So I will uh, I'll keep on keeping on, and if y'all would keep praying for me, I appreciate that. And hopefully I I'm well enough to to not have to take weeks off. But I sure appreciate you and Laura doing the podcast, and you and Will doing it when I was unable to uh, come to the mic. So I, I do appreciate that. Uh, my voice is still hoarse. I'm the, I have a persistent cough, um, and it tends to make me hoarse. And so the next thing they're going to test me for, get this, is tuberculosis. I feel like I just stepped into the 1800s. Which you didn't think was a disease anymore. (laughs) Um, So they're going to be testing me for that. You know, aside from a persistent cough, I don't have any other symptoms. Uh, And then so I I made the mistake of Googling tuberculosis symptoms. And it said the vast majority of the people who are infected with the with the you know, the virus or whatever it is that causes tuberculosis have no symptoms. But Mm. one or two things will call attention to it, like a persistent cough. And I'm like, great. So am I going to have to go like live in the desert Southwest or something? (laughs) (laughs) But life is an adventure. And on that adventure in life, this week in our series uh, from the Gospel of Mark, where we're looking at the identity of Jesus. Mark is telling us things about Jesus that reveal to us who Jesus was. What was his character like? What things did, you know, what, what made him happy? What made him irritated? What made him reflective? You see these things throughout the, the Gospels if you read them. And, and sometimes we're speculating a little bit on the emotions involved with things. But sometimes we're not. And I think that this week is an example of when we're not. Um, in this week, in Mark chapter 7, we're going to run into a situation where uh, I think Jesus is kind of irritated <laughs> at the uh, scribes <laughs> and the Pharisees. Yeah, he feels exasperated. Like, seriously, people? Like, he's he's calling them out on some of the ridiculous and shallow and um, very self-righteous behaviors that they engage in. So he's he's calling the question yeah. on the religious leaders this week. And there were a lot of laws in the Mosaic law, but the Pharisees and scribes and the, the experts in the law, they weren't happy with that. They wanted more. <laughs> so they created all of these traditions that they applied as if they were the law, but they weren't the law. They were just traditions of men. Um, and that's what Jesus is going to run up against today. So yeah, I've heard, I've heard one of my professors used to say, you know, if – if the Old Testament had a law that said don't step inside this circle, then the traditions and the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders would come along and they would draw, you know, 50 other circles coming out from that circle saying, well, don't do this because you might get near the circle and don't do this and don't get this <laughs> to where there were so many, so many boundaries that you almost couldn't move. They were suffocating, but they went so far just to keep you from getting even close to breaking the original law, and it became very legalistic. Yeah, yeah, and that's uh, that's a way that they maintained control. I think mm-hmm. you know? for sure. Yeah. So we're at Mark chapter seven, beginning in verse one. It reads: Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, 
they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. (laughs) For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. So, you know, when you kind of start off with this, um, I want to just say on the surface of it, it kind of sounds like, you know, a first century Dr. Fauci. Uh, Let's wash everything. We're going to wash. You're going to wash. Don't touch it unless you've washed. Wash all this stuff. But it isn't necessarily a bad idea to wash things. Yeah, no, definitely not. Yeah. But this is going into something way more than we understand today. You have to go back and you have to read things like the Talmud and the ancient writings of these scribes to understand just how exact all of these rituals and washings had to be. It's not just, hey, they didn't wash their hands. There was a whole process of things that you had to go through. And, you know, what's fascinating to me is that where we pick up in chapter seven, it says the Pharisees gathered to him. Well, you end chapter 6 with him doing amazing amounts of healing, and in all the cities and villages and countrysides, people are coming to him, and he's doing all of these miracles, right? Amazing miracles. And the Pharisees show up, and they're not not thinking, oh my goodness, we need to praise God. He sent us a miracle worker and somebody who, you know, is, is a great prophet or anything like that. And think about how petty it is that he's doing. He's raising the dead. He's calming storms. He's walking on water. He's feeding people with bread that wasn't there before. He's creating out of nothing. He's doing all these things. And they show up and go, they're not washing their hands properly. <laughs> like, it's, it's, yeah. it's so nitpicky. Like, I'm frustrated for him right out of the gate. Yeah. But what they would do, like, when you washed your hands, there was a whole ritual that you had to go through. You had to have a an egg and a half. So imagine an eggshell. You had to have an egg and a half full of water that you would dump first from your fingertips, and it had to drip off your wrist. And if it went further than your wrist, then you had to start over. Then you had to dump it from your wrist that went down and dripped off your fingers. And there was like all these different things that you had to do to cleanse yourself, and they were precise. It wasn't just if you if there was no dirt. That's not what this is after. The idea is this is a spiritual process. You, if you don't do this, and some people wouldn't just clean their hands before they ate. They'd do it between every course of the meal. And it was to show, like, I'm really godly. I'm, you know, I'm, I go above and beyond with all these rituals and things, and I don't eat out of clay pots. I use stone jars because those are cleaner. And it was an outrageous amount of rules that they had to do to be considered washed and cleaned before they ate. And so when it says, you know, they, the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, and actually in the original, it say, it's literally saying unless they wash their hands with a fist, because not only did you have to pour your water from the fingertip to the wrist and then from the wrist to the fingertip, but as you're doing this, there's a certain thing that you have to do with your fist going inside of your hand to twist and squeeze and it added all these things. And if you don't do it exactly as they say, you're unclean. You can't eat. And so they come to Jesus with all this extra rules and all these extra things. And they say, you're unclean. What's wrong with you? You can't, you can't be a holy man. You're, you're not even washing properly before they eat. You know, and we look at that as, uh, as sort of a first century oddity. 
Because, you know, well, we don't have Pharisees today. Well, we don't call them Pharisees. Um, you know, in a more modern context, yeah, there's always that, you know, there's always that group of people who are actively participating in church just a little too actively, just a little too, um, you know, you get the, you get the feeling that, uh, they're going to tell you that they're important because they passed out, you know, 150 flyers and you only did 50, you know, that kind of thing. And they point to these things that they've done, which are good things. I'm not trying to knock them. Um, you know, just like washing your hands and eating with clean hands is a good idea. But the reason that they were doing it with such great, you know, uh, detail and precision was to establish that they were more godly than somebody who didn't do this. Correct. And the same thing is true in a modern context, just with different things. If there's anything that you believe that you are doing that is that somebody should look at and go, wow, I bet Jesus knows that person's like by first name, like they're, you know, I imagine that Jesus visits them every night. If, if, if there's, if you get the sense that that's really what they're about, that's really what we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. We're talking about something where there, you know, somebody's following some tradition of man and expecting that the people that observe it are going to go, whoa, that's a spiritual person. Mm-hmm. It's to create a club, and there's those that are good enough for the club, and then there's everyone else. Yeah. And you know, if you went to the the reasoning behind why they started all the the extra craziness around washing, like it started perhaps with a noble intent, because the Bible never says that you have to wash your hands before you eat. It's just not in there. Like you can look all day long, and this rule is just a tradition that's made up by man. But it's based on one of the laws of Moses where he says when you go into the tabernacle, when you're going to eat of the tabernacle, like you have to wash. The priests would have to wash before they go into the tabernacle, before they can partake of anything. And so people hyper-spiritualize it and say, well, if the priest had to eat before he went into the tabernacle, I'm so spiritual that I believe that all the world is a tabernacle, and I'm a priest, and therefore everybody should have to go through these ritualistic cleansing and everything else. And they would take the principle that was behind the priest at the tabernacle and expand it out. And then they would, like I said, put a circle around that and another circle around that and another circle around that. And before you know it, you're having to have one and a half eggshells and go from the fingers to the wrist and the wrist to the finger and put your fist in your palm and do all these things that made you clean. And it's like, where did you get that from? Yeah. You know, like the law of Moses would look at that and go, <laughs> you know, what is that about? But these teachers of the law made this the the – the barrier or the standard of holy people versus unclean people. I think, Sam, also it has to do with people's tendency to try to bargain with God. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and I've been guilty of that at times um, where I have, you know, when I've asked God for something, maybe I haven't said it out loud, but in my mind I've thought, you know, Lord, I'm doing this for you and that for you and this for you. You know, can you do this one thing for me? And that's just that's first of all that's really wrong it's not theologically sound we don't bargain with god um he's not going to be any more or less likely to do something for me because i do a podcast or i write personal worship or something like that um those are things that i do to serve him mm-hmm. those are things that i do believing that they're important because they minister but i don't 
you know, anytime I start thinking that God ought to do something for me more than he would do something for the other, that guy across the table from me because mm-hmm. of what I do for him, yeah. that's where you start to get into this sort of territory. Mm-hmm. You're in dangerous territory there. And we do it all the time. I remember when I was going through seminary, you know, you would hear stories of, of seasoned pastors. And now as a pastor, you hear these stories all the time where a new pastor will come into a church and he'll change something simple. You know, like he will, you know, not preach with a with a robe on, or he will change one of the banners that used to hang in the sanctuary, or whatever. And people will respond as though he is guilty of some kind of sacrilege, and it's nowhere in the text. You won't find that in the Bible. There's no requirement to preach in a robe or to hang a banner or whatever. And yet, people will be deeply offended as though you have betrayed the Lord Himself, and they will split a church over the minutia of these traditions. And so that that spirit is in all of us. You know, there's there's things that are precious to me that are totally outside of the Scripture. That when I see a church not doing what I think they should be doing, I'm like, well, that's just wrong. <laughs> you know, right? But that's not in the Bible. God, that's not God's requirement. Why am I holding them to a higher standard than God does? Uh, but we all do that, yeah. and, and the Pharisees were, like, really good at it. <laughs> you know, one final thought on this before we move on uh, is the – if you look at the things that Jesus responds to, where somebody comes to him and Jesus is moved by something about that person so that he grants their request, it is never, well, I see all the things you've done for me, my child. Mm-hmm. No, it's their great faith. It's their it's faith. And that's what motivates Jesus. You know, it's like God is pleased by our faith. He's pleased mm-hmm. when we have great faith in him. And I'm sure that he's perfectly happy that we're doing things for him too, but that's never going to be the reason why God would act on our behalf. But God, God's heart can be moved by someone's great faith. Mm-hmm. And one of the other things is, I think it's important to mention, is Jesus isn't opposed to tradition. In fact, he participates in a lot of traditions. You know, if if you look at the rules of how to celebrate the Passover, there's a lot of things that they did in the first century during Passover that was never required in the writing of Moses. All the different breads and the hiding of this and the, you know, the number of cups of wine, all that had come through tradition. And Jesus very, very gladly participates in those traditions. He's not opposed to tradition. Right. What he's opposed to is when you take those traditions that are man-made and you say, this is now a new burden that I'm placing on the shoulders of someone before they can stand before God and be accepted. That drives him bananas. Well, let's step forward in our conversation here and see what Jesus' answer to them is. Verse 5, and the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he, that's Jesus, said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. That's a uh, that's a pretty damning statement, you know. It's mm-hmm. like um, just this idea that it's not as if you even your traditions, like you mentioned these things about the Passover. If Jesus felt like those traditions 
in some way uh, diminished the Passover or or harmed it or 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 distracted from it even. I, I think he would not have gone along with them. So mm-hmm. some traditions were okay. You know, mm-hmm. they they were just making sure we didn't forget something as part of the Passover. And so Jesus is fine with, you know, following those things. But it's when they leave the commandment of God and teach as doctrines the commandments of men. Mm-hmm. That's where the that's where the line is drawn. Yeah. I mean, we and we still do some of those traditions that help bring out stuff when we when we get to the the advent season and the lighting of the candles that's mm-hmm. nowhere in scripture but there's a lot of people who say you know that's really beautiful for me and it helps me to contemplate and to meditate and to get into the season and to really you know long for the arrival of Jesus and enter into what it would have been like to be back then but those, that's not essential. If you go into a church that's not doing Advent candles, it's not the end of the world. And if you go into a church that is, it's not like they're adding to the Word of God. They're enhancing it. Right. But in the, in the first century, and I didn't know the intensity of this until I was reading through a couple of commentaries this week. But in the first century, you know, I knew that the Pharisees and the religious leaders really held up the, the oral tradition and the traditions of man, men and the teaching of the rabbis. But I always assumed that everybody was in agreement that the Word of God trumped all of that. And this week I found out, no, there was a large contingent of religious figures during those days that believed that the tradition was greater than the Scriptures. So, like, in the Talmud or the Mishnah, it's, you know, these are the collection writings of Jewish scribes and everything else. Listen to what they said. It is a greater offense to teach anything contrary to the voice of the rabbis than to contradict Scripture itself. So what are they saying? The weight of the tradition is even greater than the Scriptures. You know, and I just take, as a Protestant, as a Reformed Protestant, I just take, you know, sola scriptura for granted, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but back then, there was a large contingent that looked at Jesus, when, and Jesus is quoting Isaiah, and in their mind they would have been saying, yeah, and we have the traditions, so our, our stuff's even greater than yours. Yeah. And it it wouldn't have phased them because they believed that the words of men were greater than the word of God, which right. is wild to me. And if you think that those things don't continue today, um, just talk to any Catholic scholar. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. the, the Catholic uh, faith declares that the tradition of the church and the way that you know they've done things for thousands of years, that those carry as much weight as Scripture mm-hmm. does. Yeah, so that's in their catechism. I remember reading that. Yeah, pretty startling as, as a formal ca- former Catholic. Yeah, they hold an equal weight. Yeah. So, um, so these guys have rejected the commandment of God, and they've they've gone to the holy to the traditions of men. But even worse, Jesus comes back to them now here in verse ten or verse nine, actually, and he said to them. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. So there's the, there's the law. The law is you honor your father and mother, and if you revile them, I hope you like rocks. Okay? Um, but here in verse 11, but you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, 
Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Um, why don't we explain this to to the folks that maybe this is the first time they've heard about this idea of of something being declared as korban. Mm-hmm. Well, back in the day, like there, you'd see signs. They found old stones that that have that word korban on them, and Jerusalem, and the ruins of Jerusalem, and it, it meant the way to the sacrifice. It's where you're going to give an offering to God at the temple, and so that's what that word means. And and what people would do is they would say, okay, I have all these assets. And you know what? I really don't want to share them with my mom or my dad or my brothers or my sisters. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to devote them all to God. And it doesn't even necessarily mean that they would have to transfer ownership to the priests or anything. They would just say, this all belongs to God. And now all of a sudden, because they've done that, the law, the traditions of men at the time say, okay, well, then your parents, your mom and your dad have no claim to your help because you've devoted it all to God. So you're no longer responsible to use your resources to help them. And so what Jesus is saying is, where did that come from? Like that is nowhere in the scriptures. And you actually create a tradition that enables people to violate the law of God. And so these traditions were working contrary, and they were hardening people's heart, and they were allowing them not to do what the law requires, which is to help their mom and dad, to honor them, to help their family, to help the poor. Um, But if they said, oh, Corbin, then all of a sudden, you know, (laughs) I'm not obligated to do any of that anymore. And the irony is, is it saying, I'm devoting this to God when God all throughout his word is saying, okay, if it's mine, give it away, give it to the poor, honor your parents, take care of the widow and the orphan. And they would say, no, 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 when you do that, it means nobody has a right to claim anything you have. It was crazy. And it didn't mean they necessarily gave it as an offering either. Right. It's just it's just, just wild that that – I mean, it's basically like a really screwed up version of some kind of tax write-off. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I'm going to take advantage of this ploy. It's not for God. It's for selfish reasons, but we'll claim that it's you know devotionally or spiritually – that's the cause of it, but in reality, it, it just enables me to be selfish. And so it was pretty gross what had happened. And that's yeah. that's what Jesus is after. He's like, you're doing all this stuff. You know, you go to the temple and you're yelling, oh, Corban, Corban. But in reality, your heart's far from me. Yeah. You're you're not worshiping me. You're just doing this for everybody else to see because it's the traditions of men. Yeah, And that's like tricky, that idea of... You know, you worship the Lord with your lips or your actions or whatever, but internally your heart is far from from Him, and that's something like that. Re- that should resonate, and everybody within the sound of my voice can say, "Man, I've been in seasons where I was doing all that stuff. I was showing up to church. I was singing the songs. I was, you know, putting money in the offering plate. I was teaching the Bible study. I was dot da 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 da." And in reality, during that time, I was in a dry spell. My heart was far from the Lord. It wasn't out of a sense of devotion. It was I was just going through the motions. Yeah. And my heart was far from him. And and Isaiah says, you know, that's basically <laughs> that's that's the corporate people of God. It's a c- consistent struggle that we have to fight against. And it, it means, you know what? Like, I need to draw near to him. My heart yielding as an offering to him needs to be first and foremost before anything else, before any obedience, before any going through the motions. 
Like I need to be in relationship with him, giving him my heart before I give anything else. Yeah. I also think that this is the part in Mark's gospel, at least, where Jesus is beginning to tell everybody who's listening to him, the, the Pharisees and the scribes, as well as the people that are there, what you had before, I'm dismantling that. All of these traditions, all of the way these guys have been making you jump through hoops, I'm bringing you something new. I'm bringing you something different. And we're not going to have to worry about these traditions of men anymore. Um, yeah. And he's beginning to turn things on their ear. Yeah, this would have been, in, in this first century, like I can't overstate this, this would have been a radical confrontation. Because the religious leaders kind of had the accepted norms. This is how you do things. This is this is what it means to be holy. This is what it means to have the approval of God and the acceptance of the religious leaders. And Jesus comes and he's like, no. <laughs> you know, most people, if they'd have said, hey, your, your people aren't washing your hands, it's like, oh my gosh, what do we need to do? Let's fix it. And he's like, no. Like, your teaching is garbage. I reject it. Like, whoa, whoa. Yeah, and he jumps back to that hand-washing thing here because he says something that honestly would have been startling to any first-century Jew because they perceived themselves as clean on the inside, avoiding all these defiled things on the outside. How do you remain clean on the inside? You make sure that none of those defiled things get into you. So Mm -hmm. they were protecting themselves, these ritual washings and you know, not walking too far on the Sabbath and all the rules they followed. They were doing that to protect themselves against parts of the, of the stuff outside of them that they saw as being potential of defiling them or making them unclean. So they thought they were clean. It's like, and Jesus is going to say, no, you got that backwards here. Um, in verse 14, he says, and he called the people to him again and said to them, hear me, all of you. And understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. <laughs> it's like that, it it's revolutionary. It is. I ima- revolutionary. You know, can you imagine if you were just an onlooker? Like you're, you know, you see a bunch of scribes and Pharisees coming into town. Walking together in, what do you call a herd of Pharisees? I don't know. Uh, 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 <laughs> phantom of Pharisees. I, it's whatever. You see all these guys in their robes and they're coming into town, moving as a group. You're thinking, someone's in trouble. <laughs> and, yeah. that, you know, and with the natural tendency of human beings to want to be a voyeur to the train wreck, they're like, yeah, we're going to go see who it is. Ooh, they're going after that Jesus guy. <laughs> you know, And then they see the back and forth between Jesus and them. And especially when they hear this thing about the Corbin deal, at that point, you got to think they're going, wow, I never thought of that. Mm-hmm. And then Jesus turns and says, let me tell you something. The principle upon which you have based all of this ritual cleansing is wrong. Mm-hmm. Flip it upside down. Mm-hmm. And man, when you understand that, it's like, you know, so many people there – or they're like us. We still do this kind of, and, and we know we're wrong, but we try to dress up the external components of our life, right? 
you know, we go through the motions and we do the good thing and we want to have the good house and we want to present the outward best to everybody. And, you know, we, we preserve appearances and everything else. And then internally, we're rotting away and we're, we're different people at home. You know, outside of the house, we're, we're super polite and we, you know, we're glad to serve other people. And then inside the house, we're irritable and we don't give the same amount of grace and smiles and everything else. And you wonder, why is that? And and the reality is, or at least I, I hope that's most of us, <laughs> you know, but there's a, you know, I was, I was telling somebody, you know, if Drew Cherry comes to me and says, hey, I broke the coffee pot in the office, it's like, well, no big deal, you know, I'm, I'm no big deal. But if my son Caleb comes to me and says, I broke the coffee pot, it's like, oh, come on, you know, yeah. there's, there's a difference and, you know, of sharpness and joy. And, you know, when you're out, you're more eager, more likely to say, oh, things are great. How can I serve you? How can I pray for you? Whereas at home, you're more likely to, to wallow and all this stuff. And so why am I talking about all that? We tend to think that the external is where holiness is. It's where joy is and peace is and everything else. And what Jesus is coming at and saying, no, 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 it's the inside that's defiled. It's what comes out of you. Like, if the inside is not corrected, then all of the, all of the terrible vices that come out, he's going to get to in a minute, that, it's coming out of you because it's already in you. Um, I remember uh, listening to Paul David Tripp. He gave an illustration one time at a, a conference I was at, and he t- had a bottle of Zephyr Hills water. And he shook the bottle, and water came out and spilled all over the carpet, and it was kind of a weird thing. And he asked the audience, he said, why did, why did water spill out? And everybody's response is, well, because you shook it. And he said, no, because water was inside of it. And it's like water came out of it because water was in it. When, yeah. when you do things that are wicked, where does that come from? It comes from within, not outside. So the problem is in our hearts, and that's what Jesus is getting us to see, like all the selfishness and the pride and the irritability and the the low levels of patience and all these lists that so often Paul goes into, lack of self-control, all of that is an issue that's inside of us, and it comes out because we're defiled inside. The Pharisees were all defiled inside. Every human being Jesus ever came across was defiled inside but they wanted to put on a show on the outside, you know, and that wasn't helping their hearts at all. Yeah. And they could they could have the best diet, they could be kosher, they could do all that stuff, and whatever they ate wasn't, you know, that's not what was defiling them. It was the fact that their heart was already defiled. Yeah. So then Jesus moves inside in verse 17, and when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. Once again, <laughs> the disciples demonstrating that maybe they still really didn't understand (laughs) Jesus very well. Um, I find that interesting because we assume that the disciples kind of understood the whole Jesus plan and mission, who he was, what he was all about, right from day one. At least I always did. I thought Mm -hmm. the disciples understood what it was that they were about. And yet, as we read through the New Testament, we see time after time after time after time where they either don't have faith or they don't understand or they're coming up short in some regard. And you said it one time in one of the podcasts. You said, if you were to take the the questions of orthodoxy that determine whether somebody is a true believer or not and ask them those questions during the entire three years that the disciples walked with Jesus – 
probably none of them mm-hmm. would have passed those. And it doesn't mean they didn't love Jesus. They did love Jesus. That was the thing they had more than anything else. They loved Jesus, and they knew he had the words of life, and they knew that they had to follow him. And yet, despite all that, they were still clueless about things. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is one of them. Uh, they didn't know what he was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so Jesus answers them, verse 18, and he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. By the way, uh, bonus fact, just because you're talking to exegetical nerds, the Mm -hmm. Greek word translated expelled in the ESV actually means goes out into the latrine. (laughs) so yes jesus is saying it gets pooped out (laughs) Mm -hmm. but that's the point these these things that you take in your body absorbs the nutrients and then you you get rid of them yeah so in that what he's saying is all the stuff that the pharisees and the religious leaders spend so much energy on is ultimately in a latrine (laughs) you know it's it's real poop their, all of their doctrine ends up as poop, so and it me, doesn't make them clean. So let me ask you this question then. If it's true that all foods are clean, that's what verse 19 is telling us, and we know, mm-hmm. that's, we know that's true. You know, we got Peter's vision in Acts to reinforce it. Mm-hmm. Um, why did God at some point declare some foods unclean then? Why was that part of the law, that some foods were unclean? You know, there's different reasons why people say that. One is a Levitical law, so it's a means of worship. So he's calling on people to sacrifice certain things, to set aside, to set apart things uh, that are unclean, set apart other things that are particularly holy. But another reason for that is a lot of the things that you find off limits have their practical reasons. A lot of the, the foods that he the, that the Levitical law of the Old Testament would say are off limits and kosher laws and all that – were made people particularly susceptible to food poisoning, you know, shellfish and things like that. And so there's a there's a myriad of reasons why people think that was the case. Um, but it's another way by means you can at a, at least it's another means by which you can deny yourself to show an act of worship. Yeah. You know, for the same reason that God calls you to fast. Well, why? You know, it's denying yourself of something to show reverence for the Lord. And but the the negative connotation to all that is Jesus is saying, look, this is not. There's nothing in and of the food itself that makes it spiritually evil or deficient. Like all food is clean in the gospel. Jesus makes all food clean, um, and and going to the cross, he not only cleanses us. But he fulfills all of the Levitical law on our behalf. And so if you want to lead a kosher life out of worship, great. But the the New Testament and the ministry of Jesus, it, that it's no longer required um, for you to keep a kosher diet. Right. Um, it's, no, it's no longer a binding law because Jesus has fulfilled all of the, the Levitical law on our behalf. I think that's important, too, to, to that distinction that – you know, if somebody said, I want to keep a kosher lifestyle and eat kosher as an act of worship, there's genuinely nothing mm-hmm. wrong with it. You yeah, know, it's, it's great. It's, yeah. Um, 
there are many things that fall into that category. There are people I know who have particular practices or habits that they do that you're, you're kind of like, that seems kind of restrictive or a little odd. And they're like, mm-hmm. you know, it's part of how I worship God. Um, and, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, unless, unless whatever we're talking about in itself is, yes, uh, I worship God by uh, uh, collecting up all the neighborhood pets and drowning them. <laughs> That's not a way to worship God. Um, so, but if what we're talking about here is perhaps something that you deny yourself, because um, mm-hmm. that's really what kosher eating is, is that they eat only certain things and avoid other things. So, And where I encountered it most of the time in the Indie Fundy Church was watching television. They considered mm. television to be a great evil. And oh. <laughs> hard to argue with that. Can we argue with that? I don't know. Um, I go social. I guess today it would be the social media. Yeah, like. Now that's our new drum beat. Yeah, we're reaching back into the Wayback Machine here for my <laughs> recollections of my youth. Um, but in there, it's like some of them wouldn't watch TV. A number of the ones I went to church with didn't have a TV in their house. Hmm. And I thought that was a little odd. I liked to watch TV. I liked watching Star Trek. I liked even watch the news. Um, so I thought it was strange. So I came about almost 20 years after you. And it was still, you couldn't have a TV in your bedroom. That was unthinkable, you know. And you certainly, from in my house, you definitely couldn't have a telephone in your room. And so now with smartphones, everybody's got a TV with them 24 hours a day and a phone with them 24 hours right. a day and internet with them 24 hours a day. But it's, it's the motivation of it. It's like mm-hmm. if, I, if I talk to them about it, they would say, you know, I just don't like the things that, I, that I'm, I'm made to think and feel – when I watch TV. And so for me, I, I just don't do it. I've given that up as an act of worship to God. Mm-hmm. They didn't believe that it made them more spiritual, or maybe they did, but they didn't, they didn't say that anyways. Um, <laughs> they certainly didn't believe that they were going to heaven and I wasn't because our family had a TV set. Um, but that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. Uh, where people have made decisions to avoid certain things mm-hmm. as a way of worshiping God. I just want to go on record. There's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. Nothing I wrong. totally agree. Yeah. Totally agree. I know lots of people who still observe some of the Jewish holidays sure. and feasts, and they, they don't recognize it as a salvation issue. It's just another vehicle by which they can worship God. Yeah. And I think that's wonderful. Yeah. Absolutely wonderful. Yeah. And there's other parts of it where if, you know, in Romans, Paul talks about this, that if there's something that your conscience is uncomfortable with. So even if if I come to you and say, hey, it's okay, like the law, that's permissible, but your conscience is uncomfortable with it, even if it's, you know, on the fence, if your conscience, then don't do it. If your conscience is okay with it and the law doesn't forbid it, then you're, you have liberty to partake. Right. Right. So Jesus goes on here in verse 20, and he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. It's pretty strong stuff, you yeah, know. That's, you can't deny it. You can't deny it because when you look at the things that he talks about here, sexual immorality, evil thoughts, murder, 
pick your one, wickedness, deceit, whatever it is. There's nothing that I might, none of that's going to happen because I didn't wash my hands the right way. (laughs) That all starts with me thinking, I want this or I deserve this or, uh, you know, it starts, it starts with me in my mind defiling myself. Mm -hmm. It comes from a heart, you know, the. Jeremiah talks about how the heart is desperately wicked, you know. We're we have a sin nature from birth. It's in all of us. All of us are kind of selfish by nature. And when you think about the greatest evils that we suffer as a society, like like you said it doesn't come from the fact that we're not washing our hands. It's coming out of our heart. Um and that's why one of the things that you find, and Jesus will get into this as we get into the second half of Mark in particular, and throughout the Gospels and throughout the epistles of the New Testament, is you'll find this call that you are to be crucified with Christ. You're to take up your cross daily. Why? Why is that, why is that command? It's not calling you to actual martyrdom. What it's calling you to is to recognize that this heart that's inside me, like, it's selfish, it's fallen, it's corrupt, and it needs to die every day and be risen to new life, a life that's yielding to the Spirit, a life that allows God to kind of take over and allow His agenda to come through us because in and of ourselves, all these evil things that He's listing, that's what naturally comes out of my heart because my heart is filled with pride and it needs to be put to death every day and yielding to God's desires, where the fruit, it's the fruit of the Spirit that starts flowing from me rather than the fruit of Sam's selfish, fallen nature. But that has to happen every day, yeah. you know, and that's, that's really hard. I, I remember an illustration that somebody gave one time where they said, you know, if you imagine the Ten Commandments as ten branches that come off of a tree and they're all yielding you know, holiness or rottenness or whatever. And every time you sin, it's like a rotten fruit. And what we think of as, you know, the battle in religion or holiness or whatever is just going around and plucking all the bad fruit. Oh, I did that again. I need to pluck this addiction away and I need to pull out this pride and I need to treat my son better. And we just go around and we're plucking machines, taking off all the rotten fruit. And that's a slavery, and that'll make religion so undesirable because it's exhausting and it's never-ending, and the problem is not the fruit. The problem is the roots. And what the gospel comes and says, you know, you're you're bearing bad fruit because at the heart of it all, it's a bad tree. You've got a fallen condition. That's why you have to be born again. That's not just, you know, kooky evangelical talk. It means that you are born in sin. You need to be born again from above and made new, a raised life. And so you've got to, you know, it's like you're begging God, okay, dig up the tree and and plant new seed so that I can bear the fruit of the Spirit. Because in and of myself, I'm producing lots of stuff and I'm getting awfully exhausted of plucking (laughs) all this rotten fruit. I need new roots. And that's that's the prayer of a Christian is recognizing I need to be transformed. It's what's in me that's the problem. And I need something new within me. And only you, God, can do that. One thing that's central to the gospel message is that you don't need to be fixed. You need to be remade. Mm-hmm. Um, Amen. And that's where we are. So um, after Jesus uh, gets done with all of this, uh, then he starts to travel again a little bit. It's verse 24. It says, And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. 
and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know that he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. So there's a lot in this here. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the first things that happens is we need to understand who this woman is and why it was that Jesus you know, reacted to her the way that she did. Um, this was a Gentile, which was, you know, Jews and Gentiles were just, that's oil and water, man. It's just like mm-hmm. they, they're not going to get along. Um, mm-hmm. And it also says that she's a Syrophoenician by birth. Mm-hmm. Um, so where are we talking about this? Like Tyre and Sidon, that was a whole Gentile region, right? Yeah. So Tyre and Sidon, it's not just that they're Gentile. So if, if you're looking at a map and you imagine Israel's right on the you know Mediterranean coast, go north to where Lebanon, Syria, you know, up in there, it's right on the coast. Tyre and Sidon were coastal cities on the Mediterranean. They were Phoenician, uh, but they're Gentile. And not just that, but Tyre and Sidon were prophesied about by the Old Testament prophets that these were wicked cities that were due to face God's judgment. And so when Jesus goes there, rather than to some other Gentile city, I mean, he could he could have had his pick of which Gentile cities to go to, but he goes to two cities that are expressly condemned in the prophets. And it's like, okay, why is he going there? <laughs> you know, well, he's going to those that are considered to be the farthest outcasts. These are these are condemned places for their past wickedness. And he has this encounter with a woman, and and so that's kind of the background. It's like. You're meant to ask, if you if you know the Old Testament, you're meant to ask, whoa, why is he going there? He must be going there to declare judgment, you know, and these are wicked cities. So uh, this must, this must, Jesus is about to get heated with them. Yeah. That's what you're expecting. Yeah. Um, the city of Tyre, if you're a history nut and you find these kinds of things interesting, was at one point an island. Um, and it was known as a city, a walled city that was on this island, and they considered themselves to be impervious to attack. Uh, so when mm-hmm. Alexander the Great came steaming up to the coast and said, hey, surrender, the people in Tyre, you know, they kind of came up on the wall and said, go away, you smelly little man, or I shall taunt you a second time. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Sort of very Monty Python, you know, answer. Um, and Alexander tried a few things that didn't work, and then... He just built a bridge. <laughs> his troops just built a land bridge all the way out to Tyre. And once his whole army could come against him, eh, it didn't go so well for Tyre. Um, so, but there was there was a mainland Tyre because the island spilt in. And so if you were kind of on the poorer side of the Tyre people, right. they had like buildings that were on the coastland. And so he destroyed those and took their own bricks and <laughs> yes. built a pathway into the sea. Yeah. You know? So it's imagine you sit there for months and you, Alexander's just like, we're coming. We'll get there yeah. eventually. We're patient. Another brick, another brick, another brick, another brick out into the sea. Yeah. <laughs> that would have been terrifying to watch. You know, it's a remarkable bit of history. Um, 
and it's you know it's preserved to this day. You can still go see these things. Um, Which, by the way, is the fulfillment of the pro- prophecies, judgments of Tyre. It actually says that the city will be scraped and it will be thrown into the sea, which is exactly what Alexander does, and that's how he conquers the sea. It's fascinating to see that fulfilled. It's an Ezekiel prophecy, but it is fascinating how that was fulfilled. So thing, things for uh, Truth on Earth uh, Part 2 or something. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> There's always more history. Um, now, this was also the area where Elijah had come and aided a uh, Gentile woman, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. First, yeah, back in 1 so Kings this, 17. Mm-hmm. And so if you go there, you'll see, you know, he goes there and has is taken in by her. And uh, it's she's the one with the, the it's, dead. It's the, widow right? at, it's the widow at Zarephath. Yeah, he raises her son. Yeah, the widow of Zarephath. That's right. And so there's there's relationships where God's prophets have, you know, show mercy on people from this region, yeah. even though they were considered to be traitors and enemies of Israel. It's obvious that I think that God had plans for this particular Gentile territory. So when mm-hmm. she comes and she, you know, falls at his feet and begs him to cast out the demon, Jesus says an interesting thing. He says, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. What does he mean by that? Yeah, it's it's one of the more troubling. I've always hated this passage for that reason because you imagine, you just imagine this, and it's like, oh, I don't like this story. This feels very uncomfortable. You imagine a woman who's running to Jesus as he gets into a town. You know, the crowds are coming out. She's got to work her way through. And if you read the story in Matthew fifteen, it brings out some of the color uh, commentary. So Matthew fifteen verse twenty one, it's in there as well. And so she's coming, she's like, Jesus, you know, and in Matthew, she calls him, so she recognizes who she is, who he is. He, she says, it records her words, she says, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. And so, you know, you hear this from this woman, and your heart breaks, like she's got a demon-possessed daughter, she's in misery, she's coming out, she's honoring him, she calls him Lord, she calls him Son of David, you're the one who was prophesied about, you're, you're going to be the great king of Israel who conquers all nations, including my own, like, because that's the way that the Old Testament spoke of this, and she's coming, recognizing him as the Son of David, and what does he do? He says, you know, I can't take from the children's bread and throw it to the dog's. And it's like, ooh, I don't like that. No. Dogs was a reference to what Jews would call Gentiles. And so, you know, it was a it was a slander, you know, it was a racial slander. And you think, that doesn't sound like Jesus. What's going on here? I'm very uncomfortable. And there's I can't I don't know if I can mitigate this entirely, but this is how I make sense of it, and I think I'm right. Otherwise I wouldn't think it. <laughs> but when it when he says it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs, in the Greek, there's something that shifts the word dog. Um, it's in the diminutive form, which means, like, imagine it's saying little dog or puppy or something. So it's, you know, that kind of slightens the offense. I still don't know that somebody would want to be called a puppy, but it adds a sense of, like, non-threateningness. You know, you're, you're, it's not right to take the children's bread and give them to the puppies, which is like the son of the, the daughter of the dogs. And, but beyond that, like, you notice how this plays out and then you read the intent of the story. So let's go back. He says to her, the disciples, if you read Matthew's account, sorry, I'm scrambled a little bit. But in Matthew's account, 
she comes and she's crying out. And Jesus, you know, there's a crowd of craziness going on, so he doesn't acknowledge her right away. But the disciples come and they're telling Jesus, send her away. She's crying out after us. And Jesus says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And that should make you go, wait, what? That doesn't make any sense. Like the prophets talked about how he would be a light to the Gentiles. Jesus, before this point, has talked about how he's for the Gentiles. But here he's saying, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And that should make you go, is Jesus confused? This doesn't measure up to what he teaches elsewhere. Like he's all about the Gentiles. And it says, she came and knelt before him. And she said, Lord, help me. And he answered her, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And everyone, so I'm going to tell you right now, he is teaching his apostles at this moment. He is not teaching her. And let me explain what I mean by that. When he says it's not right to take the children's bread and to throw it to the dogs, all of his apostles who had been raised up Jewish, who have all those tensions with Gentiles and Samaritans and everyone else are going, all right, way to go, Jesus, you're calling it out. And she says, yes, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. And so you you put this story together. When Jesus said, I was only sent for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, was he confused? Was he lying? Was he wrong? No. What he's showing his apostles is who is this woman? From Tyre, she is the lost sheep of the house of Israel. What is it like? You read through Paul, you read elsewhere, and it will talk about how all people who are coming to faith are grafted into Israel. They're becoming Israel. They're being grafted into the people of God. And here he is. You know, they're all saying, "Yeah, she's you know she's a Gentile," and he says, "I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel." And then he says, "And you." will receive my healing, which means she is grafted into the people of God. And the apostles have to be looking at this going, wait a minute, if you're sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and this Syrophoenician woman and her daughter are being healed, then what does that make her? She's not a dog. She's not a little dog. She is one of the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And that's the way it takes the sting out of this. And it would have left, it's like this judo move where he's taking the disciples and what they expect. And just as earlier, he is showing the people that they're, you know, the distinctions between clean and unclean food are wiped away. And this story, he's not changing. It's not like a left turn. He's showing that their distinction between clean and unclean people is wiped away. Jews of this time were not allowed to go into Gentile neighborhoods. They certainly weren't allowed to go into Gentile houses. It was considered scandalous. And yet, here's Jesus, and where's he at? He's in a Gentile city, and he's going into Gentile houses, and he's referring essentially to this woman saying, yeah, you know, everybody considers you a dog. Let me show you what you are. You are a lost sheep of the house of Israel. You're grafted in. You're one of mine, and great is your faith. And he heals her. And it would have blown up (laughs) the apostles' expectations of what's going on here. Well, as always with these things, um, I turn to Paul because he'll explain it to me. (laughs) (laughs) Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 6, Paul writes, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. 
but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. And so when I mm-hmm. look at this particular story, I, what I say to myself is that what Jesus does is he opens the door for this woman to demonstrate that she is a child of the promise. Mm-hmm. That's exactly I, right. Yep. And so it is hard to read, but mm-hmm. you have to remember, and, and I do urge you to remember this, Jesus knew how she was going to answer. Because Jesus knows stuff. <laughs> mm-hmm. He's Jesus. And, so he and knew I'll what she was going to say, you know? And and I will say this, for people who struggle with this, because it's like, ooh, you know, like even to use that language, dogs, like, why did he do that? It makes me uncomfortable. I wished he wouldn't have done that. Like, there are things that come out of Jesus' mouth where you're like, oh, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm comfortable with this. But let me tell you that the language that he reserves that's even harsher, I, I'll say, I'll put it this way, I would much rather be called a child of dogs than to be referred to as a brood of vipers. You know, when he, when he refers to the religious leaders that he confronted earlier, he refers to them as a brood of vipers. In other words, you're children of snakes. So he reserves the even harsher language for his own race, the, the self-righteous. And then he goes to this woman and he's showing her, you're no dog. You're not a dog. You're a lost sheep. You're one of mine. He transforms her. He's using the story to show us a beautiful thing, not a not an uncomfortable thing if we rightly understand it. But the brood of vipers label, you know, that hangs out there over the religious leaders, and it's it's few of them that actually come to faith and are transformed into the sheep of God's yeah. flock. You know, here in Mark, he says, "For this statement, you may go your way." The demon has left your daughter, but in Matthew's account, we have a, we have him saying, because of her great faith. Again, that's what we mm-hmm. were talking about earlier, is that yep. God's heart is moved by great faith. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and it, it's like, as you read from Paul, Paul says, you know, it's, it's not determined by your flesh or your bloodline. It is determined by your faith. And that's why Gentiles all over the globe can sing, Father Abraham had many sons. You know, like, well, what does that mean? I'm I'm not in Abraham's bloodline. I'm a Gentile. Right. You know, I'm <laughs> I'm I'm way out of Abraham's line, and yet by faith I sing, Father Abraham, because I'm grafted in, yeah. and and that's just cool. You know, God grafts us into His family. Mm-hmm. So now we come to the final little vignette here in chapter seven, uh, where Jesus is going to perform another healing. Beginning in verse 31, it reads, Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. He's been there before. And they brought. This is another Gentile territory. Yes, it is. So Decapolis is on the southeast side of the, the Sea of Galilee, and it's called the Decapolis, which means 10 cities, because there are 10 cities that were founded by the Greeks on the southeast side of the Sea of Galilee. So it's thoroughly Gentile. It says at that verse 32, and they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephaphtha? Is that what you would say? Ephaphtha? Is that how you pronounce mm-hmm. it? Ephaphtha. Mm-hmm. Ephaphtha. Uh, that is, be opened. 
And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more (laughs) zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Um, (laughs) It's a pretty remarkable healing, for one Mm -hmm. thing, just because there's a lot of physical manipulation going on here. He didn't, he, yeah. he didn't just say, great, you're healed. I mean, he could have. He's, he's Jesus. <laughs> yeah. He could have just said, there you go, you're set. But instead, he goes through this process. Mm-hmm. Um, any thoughts as to why? You know, I don't know. I, you know, I would say you know, there's other miracles where he'll do stuff like with the spitting, where he'll spit into the ground and he'll create mud to and put it in the guy's eyes, which is kind of gross. Like, you know, if somebody spits in the mud and takes the spit spittle and rubs it in your eyes and he heals the blind man and you know you see god working with his hands and what that draws to mind is when when you're going through creation god speaks everything into existence right he speaks and there's light and he speaks in their skies and seas and birds and fish but with man it's the one creation where he gets his hands dirty you know he scoops the dust from the ground and he forms the man and then he'll form the woman, and they're given dignity. It's like God's own hands come, and they he makes man. And here, it's like he's remaking this person. Right. And so there's there's something that like draws to mind. This is Creator God who gets his hands dirty, and here he is spitting again. Um, and there's some commentaries that say he spit on the tongue. Have you read any of those? No. That's a little weird. <laughs> But it's one of those where you're like, you know, it's Jesus. He can spit anywhere he wants on me, I guess. <laughs> but, you know, it's he's he's showing that he is the creator. And one of the things that this is definitely meant to draw to our attention is, remember, the first eight chapters of Mark's gospel, he's identifying who this is, right? Who is this one who is doing all these things, who's calming storms and walking on water and casting out demons and raising the dead and all, you know, the baptism that the skies are parting. Who is this? And in this passage, he's absolutely, when it's translated into the Septuagint, the Old Testament's translated into the Septuagint, which is Greek, they share a lot of the same words as Isaiah 35. And and listen to this passage, ready? Because this is what Isaiah says happens when God Almighty comes down on a rescue mission, starting in, in verse 3. He says, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. And then how is he going to save his people? Listen, he says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the death unstopped. Then the lame man shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. And so this was you know, one of the more famous passages about what the Messiah was going to be like. He was going to restore that which was broken. He's going to give blind sight. And so in this passage, a lot of the Greek words that you find, like be opened, are, are directly quoting what was in the Septuagint of the Old Testament. Here he is, and he's bringing hearing to the deaf, and he's letting the mute speak, and he's looking up to heaven. And, it, you know, when it says the word sigh there, I really love this, because it's like he's, 
Jesus is it, the literal word there is groaning, and it's it's the same word that you find in Romans eight, which I'm sure comes immediately to mind for you. Mm-hmm. Creation is groaning, right? But it also says that the Spirit of God, when we don't know how we're supposed to pray, that the Spirit of God is groaning on our behalf, entering into our experience, entering into our pain, and groaning on our behalf with a power too deep for words. And here you see Jesus doing that for this man. It's like he's entering into his experience and the brokenness of it, and he's groaning, and he says to him, be opened, right? And his ears were open and the tongue is released and he spoke plainly. And, you know, you asked me, then he says, you know, don't tell anyone. And now you've seen this a few times yeah. in the Gospel of Mark. And you asked me a couple of weeks ago, why does he do this? <laughs> you know, why does he keep telling people not to tell anyone? And, you know, there's all sorts of suggestions. But one of the things that I love is that it never works. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's true. And, and and there's a reason. I think that's a teaching moment for us. And, and and what what it's showing us is wherever Jesus really shows up, wherever Jesus shows up and brings healing and resurrection, and he's moving and he's changing hearts, man, there's no way you can't tell anyone. Of course the word is going to spread. You can't have an encounter with Jesus and keep it to yourself. In every instance that he does this, where he does this for somebody, it's impossible. No one succeeds at it. And that's that's convicting. Like if Jesus really has opened your eyes and softened your heart and allowed you to hear the gospel and receive it and, and you've been brought to life, there's no way you can keep it to yourself. You, you just have to. And it said the more he charged them, <laughs> the more zealously they proclaimed it. It was like it's impossible to keep to yourself. You know, I've always taken that same um – approach that you were talking about earlier about when Jesus like spit on the ground and made mud and put that on people. You know, these kinds of things. I believe that God's intent is to take us all back to the garden. You know, he wants to, he wants to create a new city, a new earth that is as the garden was. And he wants to take us back to that state. And that's why when I see him doing these physical healings where he, puts his hand on someone, especially when he like, you know, gathers up the element of, of dirt and uses that also. I believe there's that, that that is a connection directly back to the garden. Mm-hmm. And he is saying, I'm going to do this because this is how you should be. This is how all of us will be when we're back in the garden. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, uh, but it is an interesting thing uh, that, that he does it that way. Um, and I also think that the idea is, you know, Isaiah, for example, said, uh, let the, the uh, deaf, their ears would be opened. And so mm-hmm. Jesus wanted to have a physical opening here. It's like, I'm putting my fingers in your ears, and then I'm <laughs> taking them out. I am opening your ears. So certainly I think he was trying to, to fulfill that here. Mm-hmm. But I think at the end, the thing that me that was amazing is that this is a Gentile territory. These aren't Jews. These are Gentiles. And at the end of it, they says they were astonished beyond measure, saying he has done all things well. It's a uh, – sometimes I'm astonished at how well the Gentiles were able to pick up and, – and they kind of got Jesus, and the Jews just stubbornly would not. Mm-hmm. And that will continue into in next week. 
where it's like, you know, he's going to feed the 4,000, and as we'll see, it's 4,000 Gentiles as opposed to the 5,000 Jews. And the way that the Gentiles respond is far superior right. than the way the Jews responded. And so that becomes a theme in the Gospels to where people who people who consider themselves far off from God – treasure God far more than those who feel entitled to be close. Yeah. Um, you know, if you've gone to church all your life or if you've gone through the motions, you know, you get used to grace, you know, grace becomes less and less valuable. But if you're somebody who feels far off, who doesn't feel entitled to be, you know, the son of God or the daughter of God, when he comes and just embraces you, and and says, you know what, there's nothing that keeps you from me. I'm making all things new. You were clean in my sight because I'm taking your filth upon myself and I'm going to be the one who ultimately pays for this so that you can be radiant and clean. When you consider the love of God and the kindness of God, grace never ceases to be amazing. And one of the dangers of being religious or in a church or whatever, which is where you should be, is that you get accustomed to it. Grace ceases to be amazing. And when you reach those moments in your life, you need to step out and recognize, you know what? Like, I am this Syrophoenician woman. Like, I'm, who am I? I'm a dog. Why would he call me one of his own? You know, what What have I ever done besides make the cross necessary? And yet he loves me and he chases me. That's amazing. Um, and, and he stops. He goes to... <laughs> Every length, and when these Gentiles, who know how much the Jews hate them, and so they've always assumed, well, if the Jews hate us this much, then the God of the Jews must also hate us. And yet here he stands, and he's so compassionate. He He's unlike everything that the Jewish people had ever represented to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that's... <laughs> That's also an interesting thing, you know. Would would God appreciate or approve of the way that we stand in the gap and relate to those who really feel far from God? Mm. Or are we a lot more like the Jews of the first century where it's like they're surprised that the God of the Jews is so compassionate and kind and forgiving and merciful and that he would call them his own? Yeah. Um, really stunning. But his grace knows no limits. It's it's really wonderful to, to to see him going into these Gentile regions and shocking his own apostles. And I think he's preparing in them, you know, when he, when he eventually says, hey, she's, she's one of my lost sheep and I'm going to heal her. You got to know the apostles are going, wait, what? Like, what does this mean for us? And he's softening their heart because guess where all these apostles are going to go? They're going to go outside of Israel. They're going to go to Turkey and India and Armenia and Africa. And they're going to be around Gentiles taking the grace of God to people who feel unworthy of it. Yeah. He's training them. Mm. Well, that's a good word. And I think it's what we're going to end on this week. Uh, we hope that you've enjoyed your time with us, folks, that it's been profitable for you. If you would like to correspond with Sam or I, you can send an email to outofwater at riovistachurch.com. That is R-I-O. VistaChurch.com. That's also where you can find all the back episodes of the Out of Water podcast at RioVistaChurch.com slash Out of Water. You can also find Out of Water on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts, on Spotify, and in our free Rio Vista Church smartphone app, which is available for your iOS or Android device. Sam and I will return next week with more from the Gospel of Mark and the identity of Jesus. And we look forward to seeing you then.
We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash out of water.